0: This is Wilderness and Wildlife, presented by the Galton Wildlife Association in Boza, Montana. This is a half-hour program featuring commentaries and interviews with wildlife and wilderness advocates relating to the unique natural environment that we enjoy in the wildlands of the West and all across America. I'm your host, Jay Shell. Today, we're interviewing Cam Sholley, the superintendent of Yellowstone National Park, uh, this is our second interview. We interviewed Cam last week about uh, about rainfall and flooding in the park a year ago. Uh, but today we're going to be interviewing him about uh, wildlife and some other subjects. Cam grew up in uh, Yellowstone uh, a number of years ago during the Great Fire of 1988. So he spent his boyhood years here. Cam was the director of the National Park Service in the Midwest region, where he managed a team of 2,000 employees. He supervised operations of 61 National Park units in 13 states before he came to Yellowstone. He has been now Yellowstone superintendent for the last four years, supervising a team of over 1,000 employees and volunteers with an annual budget of more than $60 million, in a park that spans over 2.2 million acres and sees more than 4 million visitors each year. So welcome, Cam. It's great to be talking with you again. Thanks very much for last week's interview. We'll look forward to today talking about wildlife. So let's get started. So recently there were a large number of bison that were killed, uh, had wandered out of the, the north end of the park. They were, they were killed, shot in, in, uh, in that valley, uh, uh alongside the Allstone River. Uh, so what's the, uh, I guess the, that of course isn't your fault. Uh, they, were, they were just uh, wandering to more, more uh, friendly territory. Uh, but what's the park policy regarding the size of the bison herd? Uh, you say it's five to 6,000 now, uh, is the migration to the area outside the park? Is that, is that controlled in any way?
1: Well, we control the population for a variety of, of reasons. Um, back in the mid nineties, pursuant to a, a lawsuit by the state of Montana, um, There was an agreement made called the Interagency Bison Management Plan uh, that primary objectives in that plan were to to maintain a healthy bison population, number one. And number two, about 60% of the bison in Yellowstone have a disease called, called brucellosis, which under the right conditions can induce abortions in cattle. The second main objective of the IBMP was to reduce the risk of transmission of brucellosis to Montana livestock. Uh, Over the last 22 years, um, and there was a a general population target set uh, in a pre target set in in the year 2000 of 3,000 bison. And at that time, that was the number that was determined that was needed to prevent large migrations of bison out of the park uh, and that would, uh, you know, still maintain healthy genetics and, and a viable population. That interagency bison management planning group includes the state of Montana, includes uh, several agencies from the state, several agencies from the Department of Agriculture, including the Forest Service and the Animal Plant Health Inspection Service, includes the Park Service, and it includes, uh, three tribal members, or three tribal partners, the, the Nez Perce Nation, um, the Confederated Tribes of the Salish Kootenai and the Intertribal Buffalo Council. And so those partners over the last 22 years have worked to really manage the interface when bison leave the park, uh, to achieve the objectives of maintaining a healthy and viable population and reducing the risk of, of transmission to, to Montana livestock. Mm-hmm. Um, those objectives have been accomplished every year since 2000. Uh, the park previously, especially in you know the early 2000, uh, maintained population primarily through a program called shipment to slaughter, and so we, the park would capture in order to maintain the population and control the population. Uh, remember, bison will move to lower elevation, like other ungulates, when uh, especially during severe winters to get to, to food. So, one of the primary corridors for bison migration, in Yellowstone, is out the north, the north side of the park, to Gardner and to the Gardner Basin. Um, the, the partners have worked very closely over the years to control that bison population. Was controlled, like I said, for shipment to slaughter initially, as the predominant tool to manage the population. Um, Around 2008-09, we started getting a significant number of tribal nations with treaty hunting rights that would prefer to hunt and harvest the bison rather than being shipped to slaughter. Um, We've made it a goal to, since I've been here, to really reduce the amount of bison shipped to slaughter. We've had the population fluctuate. It hasn't been below 4,000 for the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had two very mild winters before this one where we had almost no bison migrate outside the park. Uh, We did set uh, population reduction targets those years. We just did not hit them because there was no migration out. Uh, This year was a record winner on many fronts, so we had a record migration out of the park. And we also had a record number of treaty tribes hunting. We had eight this year. And with that many bison out of the park at the same time, well, over a, you know, a four or five month period, uh, they were, they harvested 11 to 1200 bison. Uh, 75 of those were state, uh, hunters. The rest were taken by tribes. Uh, we also started several years back a program called the Bison Conservation Transfer Program, which allows us to capture bison and put them through a multi-year brucellosis protocol. And once they're determined not to have brucellosis, we transfer those live bison to tribes. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're expanding that program. Um, But where we've shifted over the last five to 10 years, well, five years especially, has been away from slaughter and more to hunting and uh, the bison conservation transfer program as the primary means for how we manage the bison population. So this year, you know, we had a significant number of bison taken by hunters, but remember, we didn't take almost any bison out in the last two years. And remember that, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, our primary uh, method of managing the population was shipment to slaughter. That's highly unpopular. Um, and I recognize that there was some, some unpopular sentiment out there about how many bison were hunted this year. But no matter what, uh, you know, people think about the species and and it's, the bison are incredible, uh, an incredibly important part of this park. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got to be managed, just like any species. Mm-hmm. Uh, Montana in 2015 authorized, uh, tolerance zones outside the park in the north and the west. In the north end here, that's about 13 miles out of the park that bison are allowed to move beyond and that's where most of the hunting occurs they're still not allowed to go beyond uh that tolerance zone for fear of brucellosis transmission so that interface has to be managed one way, or the, one way or the other uh there's only so much food for bison in the park and there's only so much space for them to move out of the park and as long as that stays the same as long as as we constrain the species um, and they can't move beyond tolerance, uh, then we're going to have to control the population. And, you know, it's, it's not a popular thing to do, but it is something that has to be done. We still think, even after this harvest this year, uh, that we will be somewhere in the upper 4,000s uh, as far as bison population. And we may go through another three or four seasons where we don't have a migration out. So the years that we do have migrations out, we are going to have to manage the population aggressively, and that's not just the Park Service. Obviously, the states and, and the tribes and, and other entities uh, play a big role in that, um, but it is the interface that we have to manage, and we're trying to shift to the right type, types of tools, but it is a very, very challenging wildlife management problem.
0: So you're transporting uh, bison out to Indian reservations. How far? How far afield do they uh, get transported? So our primary partners,
1: uh, as of right now, and we're talking to more, you know, tribes in the state and others about, you know, what's possible in the future. But the primary partners are the Cinnaboy and the Sioux at, at Fort Peck, which is up in northeast uh, Montana, north of Miles City. Uh, they've built a a very large uh, facility that allows us to move bison after, um, you know, two years or so, we move it up to their facility for a final year of assurance testing. Mm-hmm. And once the bison are totally cleared, uh, we work with the Intertribal Buffalo Council and uh, or ITBC, and they've helped move uh, just under 200 bison to about 23 tribes in 12 states. Uh, we've just we've just recently, with the help of Yellowstone Forever and the Greater Yellowstone Coalition, uh, invested another million dollars into our facility here to double the capacity. So we should be able to use that more as a tool in the future to restore tri- uh, bison to tribal lands uh, as we move
0: forward. Uh huh. Okay, well, uh, that, that's a lot of information. Thank you very much. Uh, let me shift to, uh, Yellowstone uh, Lake. Uh, have the, the lake trout, which have been a problem, have they been eliminated?
1: Uh, so you're uh, never gonna, never gonna eliminate them. Um, you know, for, for, for your folks that don't know about this, this issue, you know, lake trout's a non-native, uh, fish species. Uh, a couple different theories about how they were introduced probably in the 80s or 90s into Yellowstone Lake. Uh, the cutthroat trout are a native species that many, they're a keystone species in Yellowstone and that meaning that a lot of species depend on the cutthroat um, and the lake trout um, kill cutthroat trout and we have, especially over the last 10 years, invested millions and millions of dollars on a basically a, a, a large gill netting operation to uh, substantially reduce the lake trout population so that the cutthroat population could rebound. And I think it's a good example of how, even in modern day, these threats exist and that we need to be very, very cognizant, especially of non-native uh, species that uh, threaten the important native species like this. Uh, that we do the best job that we can to get on top of it as quickly as we can. We were probably behind the power curve a little bit 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, we put a substantial amount of effort, uh, time, and money into uh, reducing the, the, the lake trout population. I'm happy to report, and I sat through a, a science panel um, that focuses on this issue last week, uh, we're making really significant progress, The cutthroat uh, population is rebounding substantially. Mm-hmm. Uh, the lake trout population, and especially the adults, the adult population, which is the primary threat to cutthroats, has been reduced, uh, probably to just uh, five or six thousand fish. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to continue the the efforts to uh, in, in the upcoming years to to maintain uh, the progress that we've made. Uh, but we will likely never eradicate lake trout from the lake. What we've done is hit them so hard that it's allowed the cutthroat to rebound, Uh and what we need need to make sure we do in the future is to stay on top of it so that the lake trout don't rebound and we find ourselves in the same situation in the future. But I think that's uh, as dangerously close as we came to... um, Basically, I'd say extirpation of the lake, of the cutthroat trout in Yellowstone Lake. We substan- the lake trout substantially reduced their population and, uh, I'm happy to report that the cutthroat are, are back, uh, to, to very great levels. Maybe not quite what they were in the, 80s, but, um, the team here has done a terrific job, um, in, under the most difficult circumstances of reversing that trend.
0: So that program is going to have to continue indefinitely to keep the lake trout under control.
1: Yeah, we'll, we've invested somewhere around $2 million a year to get to where we are now. We don't envision that $2 million a year will be needed forever. Mm. But there will be a point where we get to kind of more of a maintenance component to this and that there will be a cost associated with keeping the lake trout levels down in perpetuity. Uh, and if we, we're not careful with, uh, make su- making sure we maintain that the, the low levels of lake trout, then we give them an opportunity to rebound and we'll be right back into the same situation that we were, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. So, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a failure and a success all at the same time. It's a failure from the standpoint that, you know, uh, lake trout were ever, uh, introduced into uh, Lake Yellowstone. It's a success story because uh, a concerted effort, not only by the park jurors, by so many partners, a lot of donors out there that have given money to restore cutthroat trout. Uh, and it's, it's really important that we realize how much has been
0: invested
1: and that we use the best available science and techniques
0: to keep the progress moving in the right direction. And the lake trout are the only problem uh, in terms of, uh, well, i call them predators in the lake?
1: There are no other-
0: In the lake, species. as far as the,
1: yeah, as far as like non-native fish species mm-hmm. that are killing cutthroat, yes. We, are, we have a wide range of issues with other aquatic invasive species and with terrestrial invasive species. Uh, that we're, we're focused on. But as far as Lake Yellowstone, Lake Trout have been the predominant threat to the cutthroats.
0: What about the lake itself? Uh, has uh, Is global warming affecting it? Are temperatures rising? You know, that... I, I would say...
1: So if you look at two years ago, we had some of the lowest water levels mm-hmm. and some of the highest water temperatures in mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at it this year, uh, last year, you look know, this year, th- th- those have normalized. I think the long-term trend is we're going to continue to see drier years. We're going to continue to see uh, warming temperatures, more impacts on, on, on different species. I think the, not that these models are always right. There's a model I saw, um, a little while ago that was suggesting that the climate in Yellowstone in 2100 so, you know, give or take uh, seventy-seven years from now, mm. would be will be similar to what we're seeing today in like central Utah. Mm. Uh, now, who knows if that, how, how that's going to play out? But the reality is, is that we are seeing longer fire seasons. We are seeing dry, you know, years where we're having drought conditions. Uh, it's really important that we understand and, and are able to respond uh, to these changes that we. Have the right data and monitoring and science to to look at what some of these impacts might be to different species, which species can adapt, which ones can't, what types of management decisions do we want to take to you know protect species that might be more vulnerable to climate changes in the future. Um, but you know, I think that uh, we've got a great team on that as well. We've got great partners, universities, other agencies. Uh, a lot of science, a lot of study going into that, not just here in Yellowstone, but across the National Park System. And, um, you know, we look at even things like how we rebuild these roads from the flood last year. Most of the infrastructure in the National Park System was built in the early 20th century, mid-20th century. Um, you know, so those, those climate change wasn't a conversation, uh, you know, 100 years ago. And so when we have Situations like what we saw last year with the floods in Yellowstone, uh, as, as, as bad as it was, the silver lining is, and there are some opportunities to rebuild the infrastructure stronger uh, and better for the future and more resilient mm-hmm. to anything that comes our way from a climate perspective. So those are those are things that are are, are really important for us to focus on together. Um, you know, wildfire. You know, I think we had 13 fire starts in 2021 in Yellowstone. Most people know, uh, you know, the, the substantial amount of acreage that burned in Yellowstone in 1988. Uh, you know, we've been working hard with partners to, uh, do the mechanical thinning and, and to reduce fuels in Yellowstone wherever possible, especially, uh, in areas of kind of what we call the, the wildland urban interface where you've got, um, you know, structures and people living and visiting, um, you know, we're doing, I think, a really good job of reducing uh, dried fuel loads in those areas, but, you know, that's obviously a concern as we move forward, not just here in Yellowstone, but everybody sees what happens almost every year at some place in the country, and, uh, you know, I think it's a collective effort and something that will be uh, a challenge for, for all of us uh, in the future.
0: So how was your wildfire season last year and what are you anticipating for this year?
1: We didn't have much of a wildfire season last year. Uh you know, we had very wet conditions um you know, into mid to to later in the summer. Uh the conditions just didn't set up for a big fire season last year. The year before, uh, like I said, we had 13 fire starts in in the in the, in the park. Yeah, I think one of the dangerous things about where we are right now with wildland fire is that, you know, there's only a certain amount of wildfire, wildland fire fighting resources around the country. And so there was a time uh, where, you know, you could burn early in the season when you still had good moisture and you could do prescribed burning or you could reduce fuels uh, through prescribed fire. That's becoming more and more challenging because it's drier a lot earlier in the season than it used to be. And so when we have a fire start, um, you know, if, the, if it's a man-made fire start, it's put out immediately. Uh, policy used to be and, and still kind of is, you know, uh, when a fire starts, a natural fire from lightning, that we look at the risk of, of where that fire could burn. What resources are at risk? If the fire escaped, do we have the resources to fight the fire uh, and contain it? And that's become more and more problematic to make a decision on because now we're we're in this, you know, fire's good in a lot of ways from an ecological perspective. And one of the reasons why we've had, you know, substantial amounts of of catastrophic wildfires is the way we've managed forests over decades. And... Um, you know, for many decades, there were, not in the 2000s, but back in the 20th century, we had no burn policies. We put fires out immediately. We have enormous fuel loads that are built up um, still as a repercussion of some of those poli- policy decisions last century. And the difficulty now is and we do a lot of mechanical thinning, meaning that we, we, we use machinery and hand crews to reduce uh, fuels to get a lot of acres doing that successfully. Um, But when we have a fire start, say, in June, you know, maybe 10 years ago, the risk would have been really low for that fire to spread, uh, so we might have let it burn. Mm. And now we have to be extra cautious anytime we make those types of decisions um, because fires can get away very quickly, number one. Number two, if they do get away, there's only limited firefighting resources. Like I said, a lot of those firefighting resources might be... Uh, you know, other fires in other states, somewhere else, and so a lot goes into that decision making. And uh, I think we've got a lot, a long way to go to kind of refine and coordinate our wildland fire policies, uh, not only here in this area but across the country.
0: Well, uh, we're we're getting close to the end, but uh, let me ask you about visitation. Uh, what do you anticipate this year with respect to uh, the numbers of people who are going to show up? In Yelston?
1: Well, I think, you know, 1948 was the first year that Yelston had a million visits in the same year. Uh-huh. 1965 was the first year we had two million in a single year. 1992 was the first year we had three million in a single year. 2015 was the first year we had four million wow. in a single year. So we've had the luxury of, you know, 15 years, uh, give or take, between each additional million. Uh, we peaked We peaked at 4.2 million visits in 2016, and then it went back down to around 4 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a spike in 2021 to 4.9. That I think that was an anomaly for a variety of reasons that were mostly COVID-related. Um, 2021, we had a lot of our overnight accommodations in the park closed. And what that meant was a large number of the visitors came in and left the park every day. Um, the more overnight accommodations that we have, um, basically when we count visitors is 2.6 people per car that come in the entrance station. Mm-hmm. So the average the average visit is three days. So if a visitor comes in uh, or you a know, family comes in in a car and they're staying in the park, they come in they get counted once. Uh, if you reduce the amount of overnight accommodations in the park, that means they're staying out of the park. So they come in and, and go out two or three times. So they get counted multiple times. In 2021, we had a significant amount of our hotel rooms, campsites closed uh, for for COVID. Uh, and we think that spike up to 4.9 million was a bit of an anomaly based on the data that we have, especially the transactional data that we have at the entrance stations of how many people were coming in and paying versus how many people were coming in and going out uh, two or three times. And so... I think this year we'll be right back at close to 4 million. Mm -hmm. Um, It's hard to say it. Last year we ended up with 3.2, even though we had the flood. So we were only 800,000 off of probably what's about a five year average of that 4 million range. You know, we're working uh, very diligently to assess the biggest problem areas, which are Old Faithful, Midway Geyser Basin, Norris, the Rims at the Grand Canyon, the Yellowstone um really focused on what are the, what are the acts that we need to take to the station most effectively, and people need to understand. This park is 2.29 acres, and about 1,750 acres are roads, parking lots, and pullouts, wow. and about 97% of the people never get more than a half mile away from their car, so the vast majority of this park never sees a visitor, mm-hmm. and we have a major issue in certain areas of the park at certain times of the year that we need to address. drafts.
0: The reality is the majority of the time in
1: the park, you can drive at the speed limit or higher. Um, But we definitely are focused on, you know, Midway Geyser Basin.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: It's one of the most congested, Mm old-faithful. coming up with the strategies that will hopefully work um, as as visitation increases. And there will be a point in time, we're not there yet, uh, that um, we're going to have to do more aggressive visitation management, there's no question. Mm-hmm. I think people need to understand also that 70% of the visitors that come to Yellowstone are first-time visitors. The mm-hmm. uh, majority of those visitors have never seen a bison in the wild. They've never seen a grizzly, even an elk. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's their fault the parks service didn't build shoulders on the road. So people stop their cars when they see those things. That's why they came here. Mm-hmm. And that's why we have a 95% good to excellent uh, visitor experience rating. They're coming here and they're getting to see what they want to see. There are people that are, you know, look at traffic and things like that and it's kind of this narrative that the visitors are overrunning the park. You know, we're focused in four kind of main areas. One is what are the resource impacts of increasing visitation in the road corridors? And other places. What are the impacts on operations and staffing and infrastructure? What are the impacts on visitor carrying? What are the impacts on you know, from an economic and standpoint? And really looking at each one of those main categories and figuring out what are the actions that we want to take today? How do we, what, what, what are, what areas do we need to become more aggressive as visitation impacts increase? Uh, and you know, that's a that's a process. I think we've got a good strategy and good goals. Uh, but there is no question as visitation grows we will have to get more aggressive in how we manage it. Uh,
0: the Mammoth Hotel is gonna be closed this summer as well as the uh, is the campground gonna be open at Mammoth? No, so we're gonna open the campground
1: we're gonna open the hotel in Mammoth. Um, you know, that got delayed by a month or so because oh, I see. We're still constructing this temporary wastewater system down here. We had such a tough winter with the contractors. It was just building a wastewater plant is a, you know, a two-year best-case normal project time frame. And we tried to do it in eight months. And, you know, it's one of the toughest winters we've had since the mid-'90s. And it just became impossible to hit the timeline. So we have to wait by four to six weeks. So we'll look forward to the hotel opening sometime in June, hopefully. And then when that wastewater system is online, we'll also open as much of the Mammoth Campground as we can.
0: Well, Cam, we've exhausted our time, but uh, this, has been, this has been a fabulous uh, discussion today. Thank you very much. Our guest today has been Cam the superintendent of Yellowstone National Park. This has been Wilderness and Wildlife, a presentation of the Gallon Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. To hear more of these half-hour interviews, go online to js-wilderness.com and see additional features of our website. Thanks for listening. I'm your host Jay Shell.